This is an ABC podcast. Sometimes a plan is so crazy, it might just work. At least, that's what they say in the movies, right? Hello, Kirsty Melville here. And in this episode of The History Listen, Churchill, Monty, MI5, danger and daring, spies and double agents, a movie star. In fact, a few movie stars even an unlikely hero from Perth. So strap yourself in, because James Viver is recruiting you for Operation Copperhead, or I Was Monty's Double. We start in the months leading up to D-Day. The end of the war is still a year away and can only be imagined by agents in the British intelligence service, MI5. There's no secrecy about the fact there is going to be an invasion. Everybody accepts that. Nigel West, MI5 historian and author. The objectives for the Allies was to mislead the enemy, first of all about the timing and secondly the precise landing place for D-Day. Persuade the enemy to tie up troops in anticipation of an invasion and make those divisions unavailable for an armoured counterattack in the Normandy area. The overall plan for the deception campaign was codenamed Bodyguard. Operation Bodyguard, to paraphrase how Churchill put it, was to protect the truth with a whole lot of lies. Large movement of troops by rail spotted at 1600 hours. The British managed to trick the Germans into thinking they had spies all over the country. 24 agents controlled by a master spy whose codename was Alaric. The Germans trusted their agent Alaric, completely unaware that in fact he was a double agent operating under the codename Garbo, controlled by MI5, the British Security Service. Double agents controlling a fake network of spies because none of those 24 sub-agents really existed except in his head. Who were in turn confirming the whereabouts, size and movements of a fake, non-existent army. The British developed a system of emulating signals traffic using gramophone records uh, that transmitted similar signals. This, in fact, was fake wireless traffic, was intended to give the impression of the assembly of a large group of armour and troops. With fake tanks. The Luftwaffe would deploy an aircraft to photograph particular locations on the ground, unaware that the tanks that they saw on the ground were made of rubber, they were just simply inflatable structures. They then decoded top secret German radio traffic to see what had been believed. And so all of these various components, a little bit like a a jigsaw puzzle, fitted together neatly. It was a, a complete control of the whole intelligence cycle. Agents from MI5 and the British intelligence machine ran deception operations from Norway. The D-Day invasion will be in Norway. To North Africa. The D-Day invasion will launch. A whole series of audacious, 
secretive, daring and sometimes bizarre performances were playing out across Europe, like an espionage soap opera with a Nazi audience. At the same time, a chap from Western Australia was having a pretty dull war, but a performance of his own was about to change everything. Introducing Merrick Edward Clifton James. Born in Perth in 1898 and the son of the founder of the WACA, the West Australian Cricket Association, Clifton James, Jimmy to his friends, later moved to England and became an actor during the 1920s and 30s. Film historian Graham Shirley. Clifton James straddled the worlds of music hall as well as legitimate theatre. He was what they call a jobbing actor. He was prepared to appear in a variety show. Maybe he did a soft shoe shuffle, maybe comedy. He started with British music hall impresario Fred Carno. And Fred Carno was quite a big deal in his day. Among Carno's discoveries were Charlie Chaplin and Stan Laurel. He did not achieve stardom, but he managed to obtain a fairly comfortable living and built himself up a, f a good reputation as a small part character player. When war broke out, Clifton James, Jimmy, volunteered and was posted with the Pay Corps, but kept his hand in on stage as well, performing in sketches that reflected the popular culture of the war. One variety show had James appear towards the end of the show as General Montgomery. The audience bought it as the real thing. Jimmy himself later described it like this. A most peculiar thing happened. I went on the stage and was met with loud applause which swelled into a roar. I had been mistaken for General Montgomery, the most discussed military commander in Great Britain, if not in the world. Field Marshal Bernard Law Montgomery. Monty. To us is given the honour of striking a blow for freedom which will live in history. Monty had won a crucial victory in North Africa in 1942 at El Alamein, making him a household name. He either fears his fate too much or his deserts are small. I mean, it was uh, one of the first great victories of the war. Colin Brooks-Williams is a modern-day Monty impersonator and unofficial historian. He pretty soon uh, became as well-known as Winston. Winston once commented about Monty to the king. He said, yeah, I think he's after my job. And the king said, well, that's a relief. I thought he was after mine. A typical Monty outfit would be the, the two-badge belly, turtleneck pullover, light-coloured corduroy trousers on, and the uh, flying jacket. It was all non-regulation stuff quite uh, foxy-faced. Well, his moustache, it was quite squared off at the sides, uh, but what you call a very sort of military moustache, very closely um, trimmed back, almost a disappearing point. He had a reputation for tactlessness and a lack of diplomacy. He was also regarded by some as fairly conceited. Film historian Graham Shirley. Somebody with an uncontrollable urge for self-promotion. The main visual source of information about what was happening on the war front were, of course, newsreels. The time has come to deal the enemy a terrific blow in Western Europe. The type of newsreel that might feature Bernard Montgomery would show him close to the front line, making a speech to the troops. 
Good luck to each one of you. And good hunting on the mainland of Europe. It was very much part of building up the image and maintaining the image of these people, not only as leaders, but as figures that the average viewer could identify with and, and, and even hero worship. Monty was famous, brash, liked to be the centre of attention and had a particular look. The perfect candidate for Operation Copperhead. Copperhead might have almost been designed to appeal to his enormous vanity. MI5 historian Nigel West. That he himself alone could have such an influence. Operation Copperhead was never really intended for the real Monty. Copperhead was the deployment to Gibraltar. Somebody who looked very much like Monty. The idea was to present the evidence for German agents, the opportunity to report on the arrival if a senior military figure was seen in the Mediterranean, specifically the Western Mediterranean. This would imply there was going to be D-Day activity in the area, and this would shift the focus from Normandy. So how and where to find a body double for a world-famous general? Remember Clifton James, Jimmy? He's our actor friend from Perth, who the audience thought was the real Monty. Hardly a master spy, but he had the one thing required for Operation Copperhead. Jimmy looked exactly like Monty. MI5 had their double. But now they had to recruit him. Operation Copperhead was way too secret to share with Jimmy before he'd been vetted. So instead, they used a little star power to lure him in. And the winner, Irene? <sighs> David Niven. <laughs> David Niven, a Hollywood celebrity, now working with the Army Film Unit and under instructions from MI5, offered Jimmy a role in some military films. David Niven was a well-known film actor, principally in Hollywood from the late 1930s onwards. The word debonair could have been invented to describe him. If we're looking at contemporary equivalents to someone like David Niven, the names that spring to mind would be Colin Firth. Once he'd signed the Official Secrets Act, he was no longer an army pen pusher or even a jobbing actor from the same troupe as Charlie Chaplin. Jimmy took his place among the saboteurs, double agents and assassins of the British Intelligence Service, MI5. I have been chosen to act as the double of General Montgomery before D-Day. I have been cast for the biggest role in the history of acting. I have to hoodwink the German High Command and perhaps save the lives of thousands of men. But while Clifton James and Bernard Montgomery may have looked alike, that's where the similarities ended. Clifton James and Monty were completely different characters. They had a completely different upbringing. Clifton James was quite a, a nervy chap. So it's quite a hard thing for him to do. I began to get stage fright. The walls of the room began to sway. My head began to ache and my throat felt suddenly dry. I longed for a strong cup of tea. Suddenly be told that you're not going to be doing any army films. This thing that he was going to be doing was a pretty big responsibility. It dropped him in the deep end. 
If Jimmy was to be a stand-in for a world-famous general, then he'd have to do more than look like him. He was a heavy smoker, whereas Monty absolutely deplored the habit. He was very fond of the bottle, whereas uh, Monty was teetotal. I must imitate General Montgomery so closely that I became him. From now on, I must try to get the feeling of actually being General Montgomery. I must change my inner attitude towards the world. Self-confidence must replace timidity. I must carry an imaginary picture of myself as a successful general. They gave Jimmy newsreels and pictures of Monty to study. His characteristic walk with his hands clasped behind his back. The way he pinched a little roll of flesh on his cheek when he was thinking. His sudden movements. His habit of throwing out one hand as he hammered home his points. They even got Jimmy up close and personal with Monty. The only way they could get him to sort of really know Monty was to put him on uh, Monty's staff so that he could uh, shadow him and observe Monty's mannerisms, the way he walked, the way he spoke, his gestures. But everything Monty was, Jimmy was not. I decided, for the umpteenth time, that the whole thing was impossible. How horrified MI5 were when I'd wanted to back out of it. Operation Copperhead was hanging in the balance. Jimmy needed a pep talk, and there was only one man to do it. Jimmy was sent to meet the real Monty. As we stood facing each other, it was rather like looking at myself in the mirror. The likeness struck me as uncanny. I was as nervous as if I'd been granted a royal audience at Buckingham Palace. Monty said, You have a great responsibility, you know. Do you feel confident? While I was hesitating, he added quickly, I'm sure everything will be all right. Don't worry about it. As soon as I thought of being cast to play my part, the job lost some of its terror. And the two of them established a rapport when they realised they'd both spent time in Australia as children. And James was impressed by how much Montgomery knew about the stage. James wrote that in that moment, any qualms that he had disappeared. In just a few weeks, Jimmy had reworked his amateur stage gag into a cunning act of espionage. And with the seal of approval from the real Monty himself, what could go wrong? Well, quite a lot, actually. If the deception was recognised for what it really was, intelligence analysts would ask themselves, why do they want us to swallow this information? and said, the enemy wishes us to believe that there is going to be a major offensive in the Western Mediterranean. We can therefore assume there will not be one. In the lead up to Operation Copperhead, MI5 had been using their network of double agents to feed whispers of Monty's visit to the Germans. One false move by Jimmy, and that network of agents would be blown. The Germans, they understood the concept of double agents, but they did not appreciate large-scale manipulation of double agents by the British. So the idea that that could be compromised was itself very dangerous. 
If Jimmy was rumbled as a fake, there was an espionage house of cards waiting to tumble. Jimmy had learned his part, and every tiny detail had been taken care of by MI5. Except for one. It seems even MI5, with all their planning and attention to detail, had the ability to make a mistake. My missing finger. Because I'd been carrying my hands behind my back as Monty does, it had not been noticed. But if one of Hitler's spies spotted it, then the whole show would have been over. We quickly made a fake using sticking plaster. It would have to do. Monty's double had dodged his first bullet before he'd even got in the field. May 1944, just days before the real D-Day, an Operation Copperhead is underway. Clifton James as General Bernard Montgomery with non-regulation uniform, the cropped moustache and the famous beret touched down in Gibraltar. The military plane idles on the runway. My heart was pounding like a piston, and for a moment I thought I should be unable to go through with it. A single slip may ruin one of the greatest plans of deception that has ever been attempted. In the background, like a vividly painted backcloth, rose the Rock of Gibraltar. On the stage were the actors awaiting the entrance of the leading man. The bright Mediterranean light streams through the cabin door. This was it. No going back now. The curtain was up. Something inside me gave way. I must look upon the whole thing as a play, and myself as the leading man's understudy. With a violent effort, I pushed James aside and became Monty. Jimmy steps through the door. He salutes the welcome party with a perfect Monty salute. Senior officers must be senior officers no longer, but mere subordinates. On the runway, Gibraltar's top brass were waiting to greet the general, some of whom had met the real Monty in the past. Jimmy's acting experience kicked in. This feeling of actually being Monty must govern everything and show itself in my behavior. And he began the performance of a lifetime. Rusty, this is for your ears alone. And as you know, the war cabinet are with us all the way on Plan V03. The French resistance knows all the details. The fake Monty was escorted into a waiting car. Back left seat, Monty always sat there. And Act One was over. So far, so good. Jimmy had got away with it. Next was a meeting with the governor of Gibraltar. This would be the obvious thing to do if a military operation was imminent. The governor was in on Copperhead, and through their double agents, MI5 had made sure the right people would be watching the meeting. We know that there was a Spanish officer whose name was Ignacio Molina, who visited the governor of Gibraltar at the very time that Monte was visiting. And Ignacio Molina uh, was allowed to glimpse Monte walking through the garden of the governor's residence. Jimmy's performance as Monty was now in full swing. Now, this affects you vitally. When the Navy sets out, 
all ships will be concerned with only one object. Front side. It was all total gobbledygook. Made-up nonsense about a made-up invasion spouted by a made-up general. The French resistance knows all the details. Only codes C and 4 are to be used by the Navy. The Air Forces will use 35A and B for the initial softening up. The governor's staff, military officers, even German spies all thought Jimmy was the real Monty. So when Copperhead got underway and apparently Field Marshal Montgomery had turned up in Gibraltar, this was reported by various different sources to Madrid and then re-enciphered in an Enigma channel to Berlin. Reports Montgomery in Gibraltar. Stop. Plans re All the way through, a little bit like a burial meal in a hospital, you watch this message passing through the German intelligence system. Jimmy brought the house down in Gibraltar. Now it was time for an encore performance in Algeria. Thanks to rumours spread by MI5's double agents in North Africa, there was a throng of locals at the airport to cheer the general. Crowds of civilian spectators, no doubt, with enemy agents among them. The streets lined with cheering troops. By now, Jimmy was enjoying himself. This is to be treated by the Admiral as a top secret. He continues to feed German spies and informants bogus intelligence. The French resistance knows all the details for the initial softening up. Now, this affects you. The next few days passed in a sort of recurring dream. Landings, official receptions, guards of honor, bogus talks on high strategy. M.E. Clifton James and his MI5 handlers had pulled off Operation Copperhead. A command performance. Nobody seemed to have suspected a thing. Broadly speaking, I think one can say that it left the Germans off balance, uh, unable to make a firm prediction about precisely where the invasion was going to take place. But now it was time for the curtain to come down. Until the invasion was actually launched, there was always the danger that my secret might leak out. Jimmy returned the Monty outfit, shaved the Monty moustache and dropped the Monty character. MI5 stashed him in a safe house in Cairo. I was now an awful skeleton in the military cupboard. A body with an embarrassing likeness to Monty's, which must be stowed away like a guilty secret and conveyed under cover of darkness, as if I were a corpse which might bring murderers to justice. After a few weeks in hiding, MI5 agents bundled Jimmy on a long flight back to England. But there was no hero's welcome. Jimmy had signed the Official Secrets Act. He couldn't tell his friends, his wife, or his commander in the pay corps. People resented the fact that he, you know, seemed to have been, you know, swanning off somewhere and wouldn't let them in on the secret. You know, he was uh, suntanned after six weeks away. <laughs> the old pay corps, they wouldn't have that. And he was almost put on a charge as a deserter because he could not 
under the Official Secrets Act, explain what he'd been doing. There were no medals, no commendations, no recognition. His greatest acting role was an MI5 secret. This is London. Of all German land, sea and air forces in Europe to the Allied Expeditionary Field Marshal Sir Bernard Montgomery. I would ask you all to remember those of our comrades who fell in the struggle. Jimmy tried to return to the stage after the war, but acting work was hard to come by. He fell on harder times, even claiming the doll for a while. Until... Jimmy had written a memoir, and with the approval of the real Monty, the War Office allowed a sanitised version to be published in 1954. Hollywood came knocking to produce a wartime thriller called I Was Monty's Double. If we produced Montgomery in the Middle East and made sure the Germans knew about it, you know, an open top secret, there's a fair chance they'd buy it. That's a big hit. And who better to play Jimmy than Jimmy, the very actor who'd been there and done that. You look like Monty. Oh, Monty, that. Why, I only did that appearance as a gag. That's the real Jimmy you can hear. This is fantastic. That's right. The film was quite a big deal. I mean, it fitted quite comfortably into... Graham Shirley, film historian. You know, the high-profile war films of the 1950s, like The Bridge and the River Kwai, From Here to Eternity, The Dam Busters, can hold its head high in that kind of company. Jimmy played himself and Monty in the film. It is distinctive, it's unique. I don't think anyone could have done it better than Clifton James himself, actually. There is a feeling of lived experience and utter believability in much that he does on screen. It's a central role in a, in a major feature film, which, you know, both various competing producers in both Britain and America had considered doing and wanted to do. All the action of Operation Copperhead was up there on the silver screen, out in the open. This is a big opportunity for you. You'll do it standing on your head, of course you will. Yes, the reception you got that night in the theatre. The audience were completely pulled from the yes, world. Yes, of course. Why, most actors would give their right arm for a chance like this. It's both arms, most of them. <laughs> no, I well, don't. Well, but being Hollywood, they did tinker with the story just a little bit. Look, there was a totally fictitious climax at the end of I Was Monty's Double, which depicted Clifton James being captured and rescued in the midst of a bloody shootout before the Germans can take him aboard a submarine for transit to Germany. The filmmakers were determined to tail the film with a bit of suspense. But there was no Hollywood ending for Jimmy. People soon forgot Monty's Double, the film and the person. And Jimmy retired with poor health. He died in 1963, with Monty paying tribute in typically succinct style. He's not a friend of mine, only met him once. Of course, he observed me a great deal. He did a very good job, a very good job, and fooled the Germans at a critical time of the war. I'm very sorry to hear of his death. Being a spy and being an actor are about giving a version of the truth and hoping your audience believes you. In that May of 1944, Jimmy did both jobs at once. A performance and adventure of a lifetime. The very idea of my impersonating a famous military commander was fantastic. It was all I could do, not to burst out laughing.
The words of Emmy Clifton James, Jimmy, signing off on Operation Copperhead, or I Was Monty's Double. Jimmy's words were taken from his memoir, and he was played by Robert Colby. The program was produced by James Viver, with sound design by James and Kerry Dell. The executive producer of The History Listen is Michelle Rayner. I'm Kirsty Melville. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.